If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks so much for listening to the One Voice Podcast, a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien with Nicole Braddock Bromley, a very special guest today, a friend of One Voice joining us, Boz Chavijan. Well, it's really cool to actually talk to you. Um, I've obviously been a big fan of yours for a long, long time, and I'm so jealous that my mom was one of the first people to ever meet you in my family. Well, I feel the same. Uh, I feel the same about you. Your your books have been really, um, really great. I've really found them very helpful, even in in the work that I do, and being able to point people to them, and and then just your voice is um, uh, in all of this is is really needed. So I'm, you know, it's just grateful. I'm grateful to be able to finally talk to you too. So yeah, thank you. well, thank you so much. You are such a hero to me and to so many survivors in the work that you are doing. I know for years and years you were working as a prosecutor on child abuse cases, Mm -hmm. and now you are the founder of Grace, which is Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. And I was hoping just to get started um, for you to just tell us a little bit more about the organization and I guess what you're doing to help churches deal with sexual abuse? You're right. I started off in, uh, I'm a lawyer and I started off as a prosecutor down in Florida. And I really didn't know a lot about the issue of abuse, um, having uh, not experienced it myself and and just really not in my sphere of influence, at least that I was aware of, uh, that there was uh, such a prevalence of abuse. And so I apologize, my clock is ringing behind us. Um, (laughs) That means it's 11 o'clock. Oh, uh, anyway. It's a good reminder. So, so um, you know, I remember prosecuting and, and, and coming across these cases for the first time. And they really moved me. I, you know, it, I, I don't think you're, you can ever be the same after talking to a child who discloses and tells you about what a trusted adult has done to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and really opened my eyes to the, the horrific nature of this offense. And so I... Ended up, long story short, we started a unit in our office, in the prosecutor's office, that just focused on sexual crimes. And probably two-thirds of those involved uh, crimes, uh, sexual crimes against minors. Mm. Um, and so as the head of that division, I you know, prosecuted hundreds and hundreds of those cases myself and then, and then supervised, uh, I'm sure, thousands. And you just learn a lot. You learn a lot not only about the horrific um, uh, impact that this offense has not only on on children and adults, adult victims, um, but you also learn about the a little bit at least about the inner workings of the minds of predators, mm, and you creepy. see consistent threads. Yeah, and um, so and so I thought, man, when I got out of prosecuting, went into private practice, one of my prayers was, what do I do with all that I've learned on the front lines mm. in the trenches yeah. on this issue? And um, and that was the beginning of grace. God just really put it on my heart to go train and equip his church to understand this issue, to identify it, to prevent it, and to respond in a way that um, that actually reflects Jesus. Mm-hmm. And um, so we did. We started a, back in 2004. We, uh, I called a few people that I had met as a prosecutor who I knew were Christians and who uh, all had a, 
some some degree of expertise in this issue. And um, I we came together for our first board meeting in a little cramped office up in Philadelphia in, in 2004. And here we are in 2017. And God has just been so faithful uh, to us in the work that we do. We, we run on a shoestring budget, mm-hmm. but I was putting together a list a few months ago of just the things that I could remember we've done uh, since 2004. And I was I was really struck not by the work we had done, but by God's faithfulness in all of it, because I remember thinking, man, what what an amazing amount of things that God has been doing through through this little group mm-hmm. um, that uh, that I would have never guessed in 2004. And so mm-hmm. um, so that's that's sort of the history. But then, you know, yeah. really quickly where we are right now, um, what we do is uh, a few different things. Um, one, we launched last uh, last fall, our child safeguarding certification initiative. Yeah, and that is uh, is us going into churches, assigning a, what we call a certification specialist to the church, and in short, educating and training in a in an appropriate manner every demographic within the church as it relates to abuse. Mm. Um, I used to go in and do trainings for churches, not go in for a weekend. And then, Nicole, I would maybe come back six months later or maybe get a call from somebody six months later from that church. And they remembered I was there, yeah. but the long-term impact was minimal. And we just began thinking as a board, how do we effectuate culture change within our churches? How do we move the needle in our churches to become the safest places for vulnerable people and the least safe place for those who want to hurt them? And so wow. we developed this this uh, this initiative that takes anywhere from four to six months. Um, it's usually you know the certification specialist is works from a distance, but does it does involve at least one on-site visit that in, includes uh, some in-service training for you know all facets of the congregation. We work with you in developing a child safeguarding team that will put together your your child protection policies based on a a book we just I uh, just co-wrote with a friend of mine that really helps people know and understand the A to Z's of policies, because if you, if you have a policy, but you have no idea what's in it or why, why what's in it is there, mm-hmm. um, it's not protecting, it, it's, it's useless in your church. Yeah. And um, so anyway, we, we work with them in developing that. And so that at the end of the day, the church can take ownership of their policy. They'll know what, what's in it and why it's in there. And, um, and so hopefully at the, prayerfully at the end of the uh, at the end of the process the needle of the church has shifted uh the protection of children and vulnerable people uh have becomes is becoming part of the DNA of the church and then we we move forward with them they have to to remain certified they have to you know sort of do continuing educational requirements uh in 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 years to come and so we're really excited i mean we've yeah. We've done quite a few churches and um, just excited to see the responses from them and to see that, wow, um, that individual certification specialist component is so significant um, because so many other church sort of protection programs, which are some are very good, but but they just involve usually watching some videos and then taking you know an online quiz. And then mm-hmm. now you've got a safe church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when in fact your church may not be any safer. So exactly. uh, anyway, I've been talking for nonstop because <laughs> us lawyers tend to do that. So I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> oh no, please. That's what you're here for. I want all of your wisdom as much as possible. Well, there's not much. There will be, will be a five minute interview if that's the case. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, it's just interesting how I feel like, one voice and grace complement each other so much. You know, grace has been around for about 13 years, one voice for 15 years and just mm-hmm. how 
you know, I can go into a faith-based organization, a school or a church and kind of drop a bomb and get people to really start talking and finding Mm -hmm. their voice, begin their healing journey. But then I leave, but then I do, I hear later, you know, how that impacted individuals to work Mm -hmm. on their healing process. But that leaves that whole area of creating and safeguarding a church for future generations open. And I feel like that's where grace kind of covers what one voice doesn't do and what I wish we could do better. And I'm so glad that you're doing this work and I wish more churches would utilize what you're doing because how important that is. You know, I, when I speak and write and advocate for victims, I hear so many stories of the church of Christian organizations, honestly, really screwing up when it comes to Mm -hmm. preventing sexual abuse, but also responding terribly to it when it happens, you know, covering up abuse, thinking that's going to protect their reputation or being quick to forgive offenders, welcoming them back into the church while leaving victims out on their own as these open wounds and not having anyone caring for them. Meanwhile, their perpetrators are in the church being loved on and forgiven. It's, it's really startling to me. And disheartening. So mm. I'm actually wondering some of your mm. thoughts on this. I feel like of all people, you kind of has, have a grasp on both sides um, mm-hmm. and are doing, you know, frontline work here. What are some of the most common mistakes you've seen? I think what can churches and Christian organizations do better? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And it's a constant challenge for us. I mean, I I think if I walk into a church and say, how many of you want to protect kids? I think almost everybody will raise their hand. <laughs> Now, so everybody's sort of on the same uh, same side as far as protecting kids. Now, how that's done and to what degree that 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 is accomplished can -hmm. differ within churches. Um, The area where I find we struggle the most, uh, well, there's a couple. Number one is how are we responding? And exactly what you just said. It's it's one thing if it's a complete stranger that's accused of, of abuse, abusing a child. We have very strong opinions about that, and we can form very strong opinions about that. Even if it's a stranger in our particular community, we can, make, we can form a very strong opinion that that person uh, should be removed and you know, justice should be, uh, you know, should be reported, and, and that person needs to face the judicial system. What we find, though, in churches, and you see this in any community, is it, it changes when you have a relationship with the individual, mm-hmm. when you know the individual, when that individual has been part of your church family, and I put family in quotes, um, for, for decades. You, you believe this is a really nice person, a real likable person within the church, somebody you've known for years. And so once that happens, that's where we th- see things begin to deteriorate because then the, the opinions begin to go all over the place. Yeah. Um, and more than not, uh, churches usually fail in how they uh, f- how they respond to those types of disclosures, uh, really because do. what happens is we, as you just said, um, we tend to gravitate towards the narratives that we we feel most comfortable with, and so though we're never comfortable with the fact that a child or anybody else comes forward and discloses uh, being sexually abused or sexually assaulted, um, we will gravitate towards the narrative that this child is mistaken or confused or just a troubled child Mm -hmm. um, and that this alleged offender is has been wrongly accused Mm -hmm. and is a wonderful man in our community or wonderful woman in our community and will gravitate towards that Mm -hmm. and what ends up happening is that the the child and the family usually get left behind 
they fall through the cracks. And, you know, quite frankly, if people were really honest in a lot of churches, they're sort of okay with that. They sort of want them to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the perpetrator uh, ends up almost in many ways being treated like the victim. People feel sorry for him. Right. They feel sorry for the family. They come around and support. And that has absolute devastating effects on somebody who's been sexually victimized. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I have met too many, I'm sure you have too, I just met too many adults who have been sexually abused as children within a faith community. And because of how the community responded, they want nothing to do with church. They want nothing to do with faith. They want nothing to do with Jesus. That's exactly and right. How many times we hear those stories. Mary's with us too. And you know when we're traveling yeah. and we hear so many stories, right? As soon as we step off the stage, you know, and most of the time it is like that. It's, it's, yeah. it's, I don't know what to do with God. You know, I'm sure you've heard the stories of, you know, they were praying when they were abusing me. He yeah. was reading scripture, you know, when he was raping me and, and, yeah. or the church turned on me and they didn't believe me. They believed him. And it, it, mm-hmm. it takes a huge toll on that Christian journey and journeying with Jesus and separating out, you know, the church from Jesus. Yeah, it's very, it's, tr- it's trauma. And so I, I've had to tell people, listen, put your Bible away. It's, it's okay to put it down for a season. Um, if you don't feel like you can pray right now, that's okay. Mm. Uh, Holy Spirit will intercede on your behalf. Mm. I mean, let's, let's give more credit to God than we give him. And that is, um, if, if you were abused while somebody was reading your Bible, then it absolutely makes so much sense that even opening a Bible would trigger trauma. Right. And so it's okay to that. And then, I, you know, for, for those within the church, the best thing oftentimes you can do with somebody who's struggling like that is just be there. You know, the incarnation of the gospel is about a, a God who stepped into our world and walked life with us. And, and that's what we're called to do. And, and sometimes that's all we can do. We don't have answers. I can't answer. I've been asked these questions. Well, where was this wonderful Jesus you're talking about that when I was getting raped by my father every night? Yeah. Uh, was he in the closet watching? Mm-hmm. I mean, give me a break. And I, you know, I have to look at them and go, I don't know the answer to that. And you know what? That sort of makes me a little mad at God. Mm. Um, but I'm here and I'm, I'm going to be here and I'm going to walk this journey with you. And I don't have a lot of answers, uh, but, but I'm here. And I think, I think that's, you know, I don't think people expect a lot of answers. They, you know, they, they know that these things are really complicated, but what they don't like is when Christians come alongside them and pretend to have the answers and to give these, you know, these sort of pious responses. I think it was, I was sharing the other day at a conference, I heard one time Bob Goff say, you know, don't give, don't give spiritual advice that rhymes. <laughs> um, Seriously. Yes. You know, yeah. you know, but, but it's, it's true. We, we feel as Christians like we have to have answers, and if we don't, then somehow we're calling our faith into question. Yeah. And, man, the older I get, the more questions I get and have and the less answers I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still love Jesus, and, and he's never letting me go. And so I think that, that's, that if we could learn to do that better as a church and also to know that, that, uh, that the journey of a survivor is lifelong. Mm-hmm. And so when we understand that so that a month later or two months later, the church doesn't start getting a little bit impatient. Yeah. And because a lot of times churches will sort of pat themselves on the shoulder because they're like, hey, we handled this well. We, mm-hmm. We're getting the person counseling and we're connecting with that. Well, six months later, and that person is still struggling and processing their trauma. Well, the church sort of wants to move on to other more, you know, nice Christian things. And so they're getting a little mm-hmm. irritated that this person's still troubled and still. And I'm like, man, that is a 
That is a lifelong journey, and it's the same journey that Jesus walks with us. And he doesn't, after six months, goes, okay, Boz, you know what? I've really had enough. <laughs> um, he, uh, he expends his entire life with me, um, and he ultimately expends his life for me. So if we could mirror that in our churches and, uh, and not pretend that we have all the answers and, and, and not, put, not gravitate towards the narratives that we prefer, but say, listen, we're going to develop policies and procedures and it doesn't matter whether it's the unknown janitor in the corner or the the lawyer who's an elder in the church. We're mm-hmm. going to respond to this disclosure in exactly the same way. Yeah. Um, and part of that process has to be has to include. In fact, the focus of that process has to include how do we as a church love this victim, love their family, love those who uh, are victims in our church who are seeing this, who are getting re-traumatized. Um, how do we love them well and reflect Jesus? And how do we, you know, how, what do we do with the alleged offenders? And, and what, do we, uh, what do we as a church, what's our responsibility when we learn something uh, as it relates to civil authorities and as it relates to that person's continued participation in community at the church? Yeah. Boz, this is Mary. And it was interesting for me as I was going through my counseling journey, and I was abused by mm. a man in our church uh, who was actually mm. my my step grandfather. And I mm. remember my counselor said to me, "I'm actually surprised you're a Christian <laughs> because mm-hmm. I was so confused about the whole thing." He, he was well respected, and he was liked, and very involved in the church and everything. And it was good for me to hear and to know that God can handle all of my difficult difficult questions right. and my anger and my rage and my yep. disappointment and feeling neglected and not protected by him. He's able to hand, handle all of that that I bring to him. Um, you know, when I look back to being such a little girl and having someone take advantage of me, and that was a big mm. part of my healing journey, knowing that God was not afraid of any of those questions that I had for him. Yeah, that is so important. And we, and we don't... That we just don't foster that in much of Christendom today. I mean, to to ask questions, mm. because if you ask questions, uh, it's attributed to you doubt and you you have some type of mm. spiritual weakness or problem. Like and the reality is, we all yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so yeah. cool hearing something like that coming from you, the grandson of Billy Graham. You know, like so many <laughs> times, I think descendants of famous preachers and pastors and you know Christian celebrities often are living under this legacy and it becomes this Christendom and the Christianese and all that. So it's just, it's even more so um, admirable. I think that you end up doing advocacy on this kind of stuff and that you have such a heart um, for, for people that have been marginalized and broken and and hurt Mm -hmm. within the church. It's, it's really refreshing cause it truly is. Well, I think, I think that, um, what what has driven me there has been, and I really mean this, the heroes God has introduced me to throughout this process, and most of whom are survivors. Mm. I see the reflection of Jesus in their lives, and many of them don't have want anything to do with Jesus, but I still see the reflection of Jesus in them mm. uh, so much more often than I do inside my church. Wow. And a lot of those pious sort of pat Christian answers when you deal with this type of thing are really come up hollow and unsatisfying. And, and I can either choose to accept that and go, well, I'll just feel safe in this lane because this is where I've been my whole life. And <laughs> wow. I'll just somehow just sort of try to make sense out of it when it doesn't. Or I can take a step back and go, wait a minute. 
that's not acceptable. And God has privileged me to, to encounter some of the most amazing people on the face of the earth. And he's taught me so much about himself. And yes, I have more questions now than I probably ever have in my life. And that's okay. That's really powerful. I think, you know, you feel like the survivors are heroes, but for me and for Mary, I, I know really too, it's, it's so refreshing to hear a hero like you, a man in the church, a white man in the church with the legacy <laughs> that you're living um, mm-hmm. to be able to say those kinds of words. I mean, it seriously is so comforting and it makes me feel even more empowered to be a voice, but also just to continue to heal from this and to lean into Jesus because it makes him yeah. feel safer to me. So that's really oh, well, cool, and I appreciate that so much. Well, thank you very much. I certainly don't see it that way, but I'm grateful for <laughs> well, your Well, you are certainly word. a hero. Um, I, I was wanting to pick your brain a little bit. Mm-hmm. As I'm speaking at different places, and I hear so many awful stories, and obviously tons of stories right now in the headlines of you know, mm-hmm. male power structures and yep. um, people being abused and being silent for so long. And now it's all coming out, you know, um, and you hear also of the responses of, let's say, the church in certain situations. Um, if there's someone being abused within the church, so many times they want to deal with it internally, um, handle reports of abuse, you know, keeping it under the radar. And so for a minute, I think a lot of our listeners are survivors, but if you could speak to possibly pastors and professionals about, I personally think it's a huge mistake to deal with these things without contacting authorities, using professionals, um, because I think it continues to create an environment for sexual abuse to thrive. And I'm just kind of wondering your thoughts on that and what you might, obviously you want them to be safeguarded, but what, what is your recommendation yeah. as far as once the report comes out, maybe just, you know, a couple of steps that they should be taking and mm. what's the healthiest thing for a church? See, this is an area where we have so many double standards within the church. I mean, if somebody came to a pastor and said, look over there, see that person laying on the ground bleeding? Well, that congregation member just beat the crud out of him with a baseball bat. Um, more often than not, I think, I would at least hope that the response would be, Call 911 and then call an ambulance mm. and let's get this dealt with mm-hmm. um, because that person just committed a very serious crime that, that could, could very well kill that victim. When it comes to sexual abuse, and I mean sexual abuse of children, but also sexual assault of, of grown, grown adults, which I've seen more and more, um, our responses are oftentimes much different. Well, let's take care of it in-house. Uh, we can we can investigate this internally. It's a bad it's bad for the reputation of Jesus if we let the outside world see that this has gone on. There's all these sort of spiritual excuses mm-hmm. that go on to uh, to not do that. The reality is that the the sexual uh, victimization of a child or an adult in every jurisdiction in this country is a crime, and so the the biblical response to learning that is to go to the God-ordained authorities and to report it. Mm-hmm. Whether you're a mandated reporter or not should not matter. If you know that a serious crime has taken place, you are to report it. Mm-hmm. And the, the beauty of it is that those God-ordained authorities are much better equipped. They have way more tools in their toolbox to investigate it, to assess it, to provide needed resources uh, for the parties involved uh, than you are. 
And so more often than not, what we, when we make those decisions to keep it in-house, it's really to cover our, our own backsides. Mm-hmm. and to protect the reputation of the church or the pastor. And the reality is this, the, the outside world and even people inside the church, they realize that this type of offense transcends all types of communities and all types of uh, people. They understand that this goes on inside the church. What they don't understand is when the church lies about it. Mm-hmm. If the church yeah. is transparent about it and say, wow, we're grieved over this and we're going to do the right thing in response and we're going to be proactive in doing that, um, that people are so worried about reputation. Are you kidding me? I mean, that actually gives you more credibility in the eyes of the watching world because mm-hmm. they go, wow, they're being transparent. Oh, I completely yeah. agree with that. acknowledging when they mess up. Yeah, um, completely so, agree with that. So I, I, it's not even debatable. I mean, you don't, even if you suspect, you report. You don't try to figure out, I was one time talking to a group of um, elders at a church, and I say, you know, if a, if a, a father of a minor of your church calls and says, I just learned that this uh, elder, my, my child, my 14-year-old son just told me that this, this elder has been sexually abusing him for, for the last, uh, you know, six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do I do, Pastor? And so one of the questions I ask the elders is, okay, what do you do next? I mean, what's the very next step besides prayer? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, one said, well, I want to go talk to the, I'm going to go interview the, um, the, the 14-year-old. And I said, okay, well, why? Well, because I, before I report, I, want to, I just want to make sure that what he's saying is, is credible and true because it's going to destroy the life of this individual. And I'm like, okay, so what training have you had in forensic interviewing? <laughs> yeah, and really? the person looked at me <laughs> and yeah. like, uh, none. I said, so what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. And do you really want to carry that responsibility? Mm-hmm. Really? You're going to be the one that makes that determination? No, absolutely not. You're completely ill-equipped to do it. You not shouldn't be doing it. Uh, it's not your not within your jurisdiction to be doing that. Uh, but what's within your jurisdiction is to contact the authorities or walk with that father to contact the authorities um, and let them do what they do best. And you know, here's the thing: the authorities are way better equipped to deal with this, but they often fall short as well. I I, I hear stories almost every week about law enforcement agencies and even prosecutor offices that are not moving forward with a case or not investigating a case mm-hmm. very thoroughly. It's mm-hmm. very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're still better at doing that than the church. Sure. And that's their, that's their role. That's their God-given role. That is not the God-given role of the, of the leaders within that church community. True. What do you recommend then um, if the law enforcement and the whole procedure isn't doesn't seem to be working because I get a lot of emails from, you know, a mom of a survivor or something like that that they're saying I, we don't know what else to do. You know, who mm-hmm. else can help us? And I really I don't know the answers to that. What would you recommend? Yeah, it, it you know each situation is a little different. Yeah, of some of the most frustrating, and we'd have to have a, almost an entire program on this. Is what do you do when you do the right thing? You report the offender. And for whatever reason, it comes back that law enforcement is not going to move forward with prosecuting. And that offender now is knocking on your church door saying, I'm, I want to go back to normal. Mm-hmm. And they're not prosecuting me. How do you respond to that? Because you're going to have a large, large group within the congregation says, absolutely. See, I told you it wasn't true. Yeah. Let them back and let's get back to life as normal. Right. Um, that's a dangerous decision. Um, but then what you're saying is, is, and we get these calls too, is, is, families who realize the church isn't really doing anything, law enforcement's not really doing anything. Mm-hmm. What do we do? 
And each of those situations has to be addressed separately. One, depending on the circumstance, they might want to seek a legal counsel from a civil lawyer. Okay. Uh, because that is oftentimes if a church had notice that this person could be a danger to children and they didn't take any proactive measures, and then that person went ahead and hurt another child, that church could be held liable. And mm-hmm. and some people say, well, you shouldn't sue the church. And I say, you know what? God uses his God-ordained judicial system to, to sanctify his church. And he's been doing that in the Catholic world for the last 30 years. Um, you know, that world has begun to shift as it, as it addresses the issue of abuse, primarily, not, not, not primarily because they have voluntarily done that. It's been primarily because of uh, you know, jury verdicts and settlement agreements. Mm-hmm. And so there is a role for lawyers, especially when all the other options fail. But then the other, you know, another thought too is to contact an advocacy group, whether it's Grace or others, and, and to see what, what are the options. Does the, does the victim, is the victim connected with a really good um, counselor, trauma therapist, qualified trauma therapist, uh, because I find so oftentimes in churches that the church tries to do the right thing and they, they connect the victim with a, a lay counselor in the church right. or a, maybe a newthetic counselor in a church who, who is not going to go beyond the, 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 the words of scripture and providing counseling. And that's not what that person needs at that mm-hmm. moment. But oftentimes it does more damage. So to try to, to connect with those people before they go down that road um, and connect them with some some amazing resources. I have a friend of mine that runs a group called uh, Together We Heal. And that's all he does is he connects, he has relationships with qualified counselors around the country and he connects victims with them. And they've all agreed to either do it at no cost or minimal cost. And a lot of the counseling is done via Skype, but he'll stay up all night trying to find a counselor for somebody that is in desperate need of one, but either can't afford it or can't find one. Those are the types of things we all have to work together with regard to that, because I think a lot of you're right. A lot of these families get, they, they fall through the cracks and everybody moves on and, and the damage just continues to get worse and worse and worse over time. You're right. And this might be a tricky question, but in my situation, I always wonder what the right avenue is when, you know, let's hear, let's say a church has a disclosure and they're trying to decide, do we bring in the non-offending parent first and allow them to make the report or do we make the report? Because I know mm-hmm. for me, if I had told someone else, which I was always hinting about my abuse to different teachers and coaches and things, had they made a report without telling my mom first, that would have been really traumatizing for me to be taken from my mom. But then yeah. I also would have wanted them to report it, you know, not just like taking their time. Yeah. You know what I mean? What would you recommend in that? No, that's a, those are, that's a really good question. I think that here's the thing. That's where the law does come in play. If you're, if you are a mandated reporter, the law says that you have to make that call. If you're not a mandated rep, so, so if you say, well, I'm a mandated reporter, but I'm going to get, you know, the non-offending uh, person to make the call. I mean, if that happens, if the call is made, okay, but if the call is not, you you could be subject to being prosecuted. Sure. So if you're a mandated reporter, you, you have to be the one that makes that call. If you're not a mandated reporter, which most people aren't in most jurisdictions, um, I agree with you. I think if you can if you can work with the family, the non-offending fam, uh, family members, uh, if it's within the family, um, to walk with them to make that call to report, then that's better. But I will say this. If you've got a, and I've had 
cases like this where you've got a, a non-offending family member, you've got an offending family member, and a non-offending family member just doesn't want to report it or maybe doesn't believe the, the child's disclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that setting, you absolutely have to report it yeah. uh, because it's not going to be reported by, by the non-offending family member. But at the end of the day, for churches, especially if it's somebody within your church, uh, if you're not a mandated reporter, then absolutely work with that family to make that report as quickly as possible. And if they know that you're going to walk that journey with them uh, versus, hey, you need to make the call. So most people, this is foreign. They're absolutely traumatized. They're scared. Uh, they need a support network. And that church needs to needs to be that for them, including making that report. That's good. Yeah. So on another side of things, you're a dad, right? Yes. Three daughters. Man, and I have three sons. Mary has one son. So knowing what we know, you know, we have heard the story, story after story. And when you have kids, it's so tricky. I mean, my boys are between two and eight. Mary's is almost three. And you've kind of gone this road with them. I mean, as far as parenting goes, my kids will not have be going to sleepovers. And I and I feel right. bad about that. Like literally yesterday, my son Jude, my eight year old asked me if he could have a sleepover and I've never let him do it before. So it's funny to me that he's asking. But and my response is sure, if it's at my house. Right. But how long does that go on before you you know, you've, you have to find that balance. I'm just wondering how have you yeah. personally knowing, you know, you have the knowledge that I have. How do you handle this stuff with balance and just not completely put our kids in this bubble where it's a it's a healthy thing for them and not, you know, a hindering thing? I, you know, there is a difference between being paranoid and being vigilant. Mm-hmm. And what we don't want to do is become paranoid parents, but yeah. we want to be vigilant parents. That's good. And as a father of of three daughters, the oldest who is, I think, uh, 22 and the youngest is 17. Um, You know, we had our three daughters, uh, except for the youngest, the oldest two, when I was a prosecutor. Um, And I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm grateful for that because I think it helped uh, my wife and I uh, parent a little bit differently. Uh, I think, like you said, I mean, I, my big, our big belief was what can we do to minimize the opportunities for mm-hmm. this to happen? You can't prevent it 100% unless you keep them locked up. Yeah. Um, and so how do we minimize those opportunities? So we have to really think through that. And, and so for you, you got it right. I mean, one of the things we said is no sleepovers. Um, and then I said, well, nobody's sleeping over at our house, too, because if I tell a parent, hey, my child can't yeah. sleep over at your house, but send send yours over to mine. I know. Yeah. This is the thing <laughs> like, in my head. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. I don't want to be a hypocrite right. about this. But <laughs> well, and, and with us, I will say this with us, because because we had three daughters, what we would do, because, yeah, we did want to be so rigid. Yeah. When I would have to go out of town to speak or do whatever, that would be the time that our girls couldn't have, have somebody to sleep over. Because it's, you know, Lydia, my wife, and, and the girls. And is it is that 100% foolproof? No. But you know what? I just had to say, okay, God, I, again, I don't want to be paranoid. Mm-hmm. I think we're being vigilant here. But when I'm, you know, when I go out of town, that's their opportunity to have, have somebody come over. Yeah. The only place places our girls have ever slept over, not uh, with others, have been cousins on a rare occasion. And then in those scenarios, again, I, we had to, Lydia and I would look at each other and go, okay, we don't want to start just sort of bending the rule and saying, okay, we'll have 35 exceptions. Yeah. But we say, okay, in this, in this situation, uh, if we both have a piece about it, okay, we'll do that. But very, very few times that happened in, in okay. their growing up years. But mm-hmm. it's not just sleepovers. It's just trying to, again, 
talk to them about these things. You know, my kids have always sort of known what I've done okay. and the work I do. So we've we've had good open discussions about that. Because your oldest was 10 then, about 10-ish when you started Grace. Yeah. Okay. She was born in 95. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, about nine. So, yeah. but, you know, as, as they get older now, uh, it's been awesome to see. And, of course, I could brag about my girls all day, but but <laughs> the, all three of them have such a heart for for marginalized and outcast people, for hurting people. They are my biggest cheerleaders. They, uh, I went to speak at Belmont a, f- a few weeks ago. My daughter, my middle daughter's at school there, and okay. it was just um, it was just amazing to to be able. To ha- you know, she's like, Dad, I'm coming to hear you, and to have uh-huh. her sitting in the audience and talking about this. And yeah. so as they get older, you know, it's, it's I see the reward. But yeah, you have to be, you, but you got to be vigilant, and you're going to get pushback from a lot of other parents. I got pushback from family members. Oh, come on! I know right. you just because of the work you do, you mm-hmm. you're probably just a little parent. I'm like, you know. Mm-hmm. At some level, you have to just not care what people think because yeah. a yeah. lot of people will give in. Like, well, I don't want to offend this family, so I'll send my kid over there. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, do you realize what you're doing? <laughs> because you don't want to offend somebody. You're sending the most precious gift God has ever given to you to a, in, in an environment where you're not 100% comfortable with it. Don't do it. Yeah. And I think that we, if we can just care less about people's responses – doesn't mean we have to be jerks about it. Right. But and I got a I got a little bit of a pass because of the work I did. So people understood I was a prosecutor and the type mm-hmm. of cases I prosecuted. So they they didn't really push back too hard. Yeah. Um and I and I also didn't dictate it for everybody else. I said this is a decision that we have made. Uh you have to make your own decisions, but just you have to be thinking consciously and proactively, how do we minimize opportunities that exist? And that doesn't even when I mean, we haven't even gotten into issues of of, you know, social media and, and computers and phones. Oh. And, you know, that's just a whole nother world where parents oh. are handing kids iPhones and doing nothing to talk to them about what what's on there, what could be on there mm-hmm. that they would, you know, if they gave them a if they gave them a handgun, first of all, they wouldn't give them a handgun probably. But if they did, boy, they'd have to make the kid go through, you know, training classes and you know safety classes and all these types of things. But we give them a phone and we don't do or say anything. Right. And phones have have hurt and killed more people probably if we were to look at it than handguns mm-hmm. um True. so it's just yeah it's just a mentality that we again goes back to that vigilance yeah but not being paranoid that everybody's going to molest my child and oh my goodness i i'm never going to let you out of my sight and yeah. this and that because that doesn't train them and prepare them you know my oldest daughter moved you know she graduated from college last year and moved away and and you know i i had to be good with that. And, and I am, Mm -hmm. but if I had been paranoid our whole, her whole life, I'd be a basket case right now. I probably wouldn't be on the, on this interview with you. I'd probably be trying to find out where she's at and follow her around, just make sure she's okay. So, um, you know, ultimately our children belong to to Jesus and not me. And, uh, and I have to, there has to be a level of trust in that and, and, uh, but trust with a lot of vigilance. Mm-hmm. Were you talking with your girls about sexual abuse and the work you were doing from the beginning? You know, I'm asking because just this past weekend, again, my oldest was asking me, he wants to read Hush so bad. And I mean, he's about to be okay. nine. Yeah. And so it's a real tough thing for me right now because, you know, mm. he feels ready to hear hard things, but I don't know that he's ready yeah. to hear it about his mom. I'm just wondering, you know, when you were raising your girls, were you pretty open about some of the stuff in the world or were you trying to still give them a world of unicorns and rainbows for a while? <laughs> <laughs> um, probably a little bit of both. 
That's a great question for my wife to answer, too, because I think she would probably say we've been more open than not, but trying to be age appropriate as well. So, you know, saying when Hannah was nine and I was a prosecutor and I'm not coming home and telling her all the different types of cases I was dealing with because sure. I would traumatize her. Yeah. But as they got older and we began, you know, Lydia uh, initially, uh, when they got to a certain age, would, would take them away for a weekend and, and just talk to them about uh, issues of, of, you know, personal safety and body safety and sex and all yep. those things that parents dread to talk to their kids about. And we just said, you know, I think we need to have an explicit conversation, but that's not the end all of conversation. That's just sort of the mm-hmm. beginning of an ongoing conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, and so and I, again, I think maybe in in some sense, because of the work I've done as a prosecutor and also with Grace, it was more natural a part of our sort of family conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids now know exactly what I, you know, what we do and, and they get, they'll send me stories and can't believe this is going on. And they become little, ad- well, not little, but they become advocates. <laughs> right. Which is, uh, which is great. But I, in fact, I remember telling, I had, did you all watch that uh, documentary, The Hunting Ground, um, with the, the, talking about college uh, sexual assaults and, yeah. and it was really powerful documentary. So I remember watching and I remember going, okay, Hannah and Adelie are two oldest. I said, you guys, you got to watch this with me. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're like, okay. So they watch it and it was great because by the end they were so ticked off at the end, they were ready to like change the world. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is yeah. exactly what I wanted. Um, but, but yeah, so it's a, it's a tough thing. I mean, parents don't want to think that this exists. And if it does, they don't really want to talk about it. And, and I think that you need resources. Some parents need some resources. You know, we've, we've, published this um, God Made All of Me book for, for parents to read to their kids who are, you know, anywhere from like six to 10 or 12. And, and it just, it's a, it's written by Justin and Lindsay Holcomb, and they do such a great job of unpacking these difficult issues in such a, a, a wonderful, non-threatening, non-traumatic way that's beautifully illustrated. And it's just something that helps those parents who are a little nervous about having these conversations. Mm-hmm. It's, right. just a, it's a helpful resource. I think your books are the same way. I, just, I think those are resources that get conversations going. Yeah. And I think every parent has to make that decision of, okay, what age mm-hmm. is the right age? Mm-hmm. But, but I certainly don't think 18 or 19 is. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um, you know, it's got to be backed up, cause it, especially nowadays, because this stuff is just, you know, our culture, oh, I both inside yeah. and outside the it church, is saturated with it. Earlier than even when we were kids, definitely. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So how can people find more info on Grace and to get all of your amazing resources? Just go to our website, just netgrace.org, N-E-T-G-R-A-C-E.org. We have um, a lot of resources there. If they want to uh, reach out to us for the to learn more about the certification initiative, they can just email us at uh, certification at netgrace.org. And we'll have our certification director I'll get back in touch with them and, and talk with them a little bit more about uh, what it what it entails and and hopefully come on board and help them out. I sure hope so. You have so many yeah. resources and it's a shame that you know not every church has to go through it. So hopefully after this there will be more people wanting to you know do more to prevent abuse in these places where it's happening too frequently. Yeah. Well, listen. Thank you all for doing what you're doing to just raising awareness. My goodness. Um, so, so, and you all, you, that both of you come with a, uh, a credibility that it's hard for people just to turn you off or tune you out. So, uh, and when they do keep speaking, <laughs> keep plowing forward. Well, I can't get Mary to shut up. So that is a <laughs> I given. Was, 
Yeah, Good. I'm in radio. That's my my full time gig. So um, yeah. God has just given <laughs> oh, me the awesome. gift of gab, and yeah. <laughs> Keep, keep gabbing. I will take the encouragement to heart, though, boss. Yeah. No, I... <laughs> oh, Thank my. you so much. I pray that our paths and our speaking tours will cross one day. I'm sure they will. But keep up I the great work. I certainly hope so. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the One Voice podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider so you don't miss any of our topics or special guests. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review. And to become part of our online community, visit imonevoice.org and follow us on Facebook.